0: Father in heaven, this is your word. Um, It's amazing to us that we have it. So I pray for me and for all of us that we would take it as it is. That is the very word of God. And when it's read, that we'll know this is God speaking to us. This is what he wants us to hear. And then help us then as we think through it together, that we can think your thoughts after you. So please now I pray. Bless us in the richest sense of that word in this endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Titus in chapter one. I want to read, I'm sorry, Titus chapter three. I want to begin reading with verse one through verse eight. Familiar to us, I trust. Titus chapter three, please. Uh, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, uh, to speak Evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, may poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage that I've read, especially beginning with verse 4, that says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in through verse 7, is likely to have been or to at least have become an early Christian creed. Just a, a cogent a summary, if you will, of what it is that we believe and would have been rehearsed and repeated by believers as they gathered together. There's a number of these throughout the scripture. We use them from time to time in our own uh, liturgy, our worship. Uh, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, He was with God in the beginning. That whole passage uh, we, we, we read through as a profession, really, of faith. Or Colossians chapter 1 that speaks of Jesus as being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You just read that and you go, yes, that's just in capitalized form, uh, what it is that we uh, believe. And then, of course, in Philippians chapter 2, we often use uh Christ Jesus who was in the form of God did not recall, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form we say that so you get the sense that those are those are big ones first Corinthians 15 where Paul lays out the gospel uh, I give to you that which I have received that Jesus uh died for our sins according to the scripture was raised on the third day that passage that's another one like that this is a passage like that uh, this it's one sentence beginning in verse four and and we just hear it and we go, yes, that's, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy spirit. And we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We go, yes, you know, that's, 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 that's it. What we believe to be true. And, and the statement is about our salvation. It, it, the, 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 the real hinge of the passage is just these three words in the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. That's what this is about. He, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Trinitarian passage, as we'll see. He, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saved us. And when we make that profession, we're saying, first of all, that He rescued us. That's what being saved means. He rescued us. He did for us something that we could not do for ourselves. So we're professing we can't do it, only He can do it. And it's so significant that it's called salvation. It's so significant that it's called our salvation. Without it, we're lost. Without it, we're dead. With it, we're found and, and alive. So it's that significant, this statement. So what I want to do, if God will help me, is to, is to just walk ourselves through this. And I want to use an outline that um, John Stott uses. John Stott was, passed away recently in the last few years. Um, uh, a pastor, a uh, theologian, uh, known for his work in missions, author, um, deeply significant to many of us uh, in this generation. Uh, But when he lays out his comments on on Titus uh, chapter 3, this particular passage, he says, what this shows for us is is our need of this salvation, the source of our salvation, the ground of our salvation, that is what what it rests upon, the means through which it comes to us, the goal of our salvation, and then the evidence of it. So he says these are the six ingredients of of our salvation. Um, can I do that again? Uh, the need of it, uh, the the source of it, the ground of it, the means of it, um, the uh, the goal of it, and the evidence of it. Those six ingredients. Just to walk through this, just to remind us, and really hopefully quicken. Uh, that word means to bring to life, to quicken our own minds and hearts about this so that we can relieve, if we're believers in Jesus, rejoicing, and if we're not, that we become believers in Jesus, even as these words are laid out uh, for us. The need of our, of our salvation begins in, in verse three. He he, he he says he says for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, uh, hated by others and hating one another. We've talked about this, but I want sort to of labor it a moment because if, if this is true, then everything that follows is our only hope. And if it isn't true, then everything that follows is unnecessary. But it is true. And, and notice that Paul speaks of we. He, he said some rather startling remarks about you, about the Cretans. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 12, he said, One of the Cretans, a poet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Uh, let me find if you have to say something negative about someone. Quote someone else uh, who says it. But, but uh, you know, they, they say... Uh, But now Paul includes himself in this. He says, We. He knew himself. And remember, he referred to himself when he wrote to Timothy as the chief of all sinners. And he wasn't just being self deprecating there, he understood his own life as a persecutor, a murderer. And that's who he was. And then he was saved. By God, and so he knows that as well as anybody. Deep, not just the theology of it, but he knows deeper than his own his own life that he was saved uh, by. Uh, God. And we know the, the origins, if you will, of this salvation, uh, of this need, excuse me, the, this need comes from Genesis chapter three. That's our narrative as human beings begins in Genesis chapter one. It tells our story. This is, this is, this is who we are. We're created in the image of God, but we know a deep impact on that image of God happened in Genesis three, where Adam sinned. Remember God said, here's a tree, the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. God wasn't just being mean to keep something from him. He was making a point. God was saying to Adam, Don't trust anyone but me, anyone but God, to tell you what's good and evil. Don't trust this tree. Don't trust yourself. Certainly don't trust this serpent. uh, But trust me. I'm the only one who can define for you and tell you what is good and evil. Because I'm good. I know it. You don't know it as I know it, God would say. I know it because this is who I am. I'm good. You don't know it. You're made in my image, thus you depend on me to define that for you. Don't go your own way. But they did. Adam did, then Eve. Eve first, then Adam. But it was his responsibility. So it's always called the sin of Adam in the scripture. And so there, there we have it. And 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 this then created the foolishness that. Paul writes of here, he says, we ourselves were once foolish. Foolish is a technical term in the scripture. It doesn't mean that you're stupid. It doesn't mean that you don't understand well or your brain doesn't function well. It means that you're foolish. The fool says in his heart, the scripture says, there is no God. That's foolishness. To act as if, to live as if there is no God. To think that you, that we, can create a good moral place to live. That's what, when Adam and Eve sinned, that's in a sense what they were saying. No, we can create here in Eden a place that's good for humans. God says, no, you can't. And foolishness is that we can actually do that. That we can actually create for ourselves a universe, a place to live that which is good. Good. And so we're disobedient. We continue to go against God because, you see, this sin created in us, not looking to God for that which is good, but looking inside. And so we became selfish and self-centered so that all that we do revolves not around who God is good, but who we are. And it creates a world of real self-centeredness and selfishness. We see this all the time, generation after generation, generation decade after decade, year after year, day after day, moment in moment, that human beings are selfish and self-centered. And all that we do is tainted with that self-centeredness, you see. And we live foolishly. We think we really can do it. I'm reminded of that every election cycle. Every election cycle, I'm not just picking on this one, but every election cycle that we go through, candidates come before us and say, here's the problems, here's the solution. But no one can get at the real solution, which is the human heart. Nobody can get at the real solution, which is the evil that is within us. We can stop war by being stronger than the other, but, but we really can't stop war. We can, we can stop injustice in some measure by, by putting uh, penalties on those who are unjust, but we can't stop it because it's in here, you see. And we're, he says then, uh, we're, um, led astray, that is, we're deceived, and we're slaves to various passions and pleasures. Uh, After Adam and Eve sinned, the the commentary that we receive from God about human beings is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the thoughts and inclinations of their hearts were evil continuously. Unless you deal with that, you can't really deal with what's the matter. Jeremiah put it starkly when he said, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Who can trust it? You can't even trust your own inclinations, Jeremiah was saying, because because they're evil. And, and and here it says that we're deceived by our own hearts. Our own heart says that is good when it's not good. And, and he says, so we're deceived. We're enslaved to our passions and pleasures. We can't get past our own selfishness and our own self-centeredness centeredness, asking the question ultimately, what's good for me in this? That's what drives us. What's good for me in this? And and that's what we're enslaved to, those kinds of passions and pleasures. And what that means is that we pass our days in malice and envy. Now, it doesn't come out that way all the time. But but we know the, the maliciousness of our own hearts. We know that we do wish others evil. And we do know we envy and we want to have what the other has. And we're not happy when they have it. And we, we don't. This was brought home to me a number of years ago. 20 now. When a friend, <clears throat> a pastor friend, committed suicide. And as we were processing that with some other pastor friends, one of my acquaintances at the time, said something that stopped the conversation. Because, you see, this pastor friend who had committed suicide was successful, charismatic, handsome. Uh, He had everything you could imagine. And uh, my other friend, who was similarly gifted, said, even as I grieved Tim's death, Part of me said in my own heart, I knew I was better than him. And we all just went, that's in us, isn't it? We, We get that. We know that's true. That's how we are. Because of the sin that's within us. Malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, causes all kinds of relational issues with us. We get that. That's, that's the point of this. And that's where we're stuck, you see. That's where we're stuck. Uh, we're, we're there. We, we can't get around that, you see. Uh, and and the, the real tragedy of this depravity isn't only hell. That's tragic, of course the judgment of God. But the tragedy is. We'll never know what it means to be truly human. Made in the image of God. This keeps us from knowing that. This keeps us from really loving someone else. Really loving someone else. And to know the joy of doing that which is good. Not good from my standards. But good from God's standards. That which God knows to be good. It keeps us from that. We're stuck in that. That's the, the tragedy really of it. Of, of this sin that affects us and leads us then ultimately to condemnation by God in hell. And all of that. So so what's the solution? Well the, the the source of of the salvation of He saving us is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the sense of it. He saved us. You can see it's the work of God our Savior. Uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit as well. And so we we know that we're saved by God. And what moves him to save us is his Kindness, or we have it in this translation that I read, goodness be translated either kindness or goodness. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, see that the, the the real source of this, the origin of this salvation, is God, because of who He is. He's kind. He's good. He loves. We read that he's merciful, that he's gracious. It comes from God, this salvation, not from us. We lack kindness. We lack love. We lack mercy. We lack grace. But you see the kindness, the goodness, the love, the mercy, the grace, that's where, that's the source of this Salvation. You know that passage that is so dear to us in, in Matthew, in chapter 11, where Jesus says, uh, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That little word, easy, is in the same word, family, as the word kindness and goodness. He's saying, my yoke is good, it's kind, it fits. When you put this yoke on you, tied to me, then you know all is well. And so when he says, when the kindness, goodness of God our Savior appeared, it's it's this, he says, this fits you, this is exactly what you need. This, my kindness, my goodness, my love to you, you see. And this is the origin of our salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We know that. And then in this passage again, another one of those passages that we use as a profession of faith in Ephesians in chapter 2. Verse 1, it starts out uh, like this passage in, 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 in Titus 3. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of la- wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? You're foolish and disobedient. Then verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God. See, that was our hopelessness and helplessness. And now comes what we need. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, it's the kindness, the goodness, the love, the mercy, the grace. That's the source of which this salvation comes. We get that. We understand that. But the ground of it, where it rests, is Jesus and what he has done. Notice. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You see, He starts out in a negative way. He says, "Here's what it's not based upon. It doesn't rest upon our of our merit, if you will, or our righteousness, our righteous deeds. It doesn't result. It doesn't come from that. It comes from something else. You can't save yourself." The deeds that we do are tainted with selfishness and self centeredness. The deeds that we do are not good compared to God's goodness, what he really defines as good, that which reflects him rather than reflects us, that which says what which does God approve of, which does God say is good as opposed to what we say is good and what is really good we think for us. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And not simply his mercy as an attribute, but his mercy and what it caused him to do. Which is to send his son to redeem us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. When Christ came. And what did he do when he appeared? Notice in uh, chapter 2 verse 11 of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared. See, his grace appeared in Jesus. Bringing salvation for all people. Verse uh, 14. Uh, who, reference to Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself a people of, for his own possession who are zealous for good, good works. When he appeared, he redeemed. He bought us. we talked a lot about this in the weeks prior. He bought us. He freed us from this enslavement. This enslavement that, that, that meant we would never know what it would really mean to be really human, to be really those in the image of God, to be those who really loved. He freed us from that self-centeredness. That's what he did on the cross. He redeemed us from the penalty of the law. He redeemed us from this enslavement to sin he bought us back he freed us that's the sense of it that's how we must and should uh, really uh, understand uh, ourselves what christ has done this is love the scripture says not that we loved god but that he loved us and gave our lord jesus as a propitiation for our sins that's the love of god the mercy of God to give Jesus for us, to redeem us. That's the sense of it, really. So our need is our hopelessness and helplessness because of our sin. The, the source of this salvation is God himself and his kindness and his mercy and his grace and his goodness and his love. And the, the real ground of it is the work of Jesus. How does it get to us? What's the means by which it comes? Notice he says this. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so he says, here's the means by which it comes to us. It comes to us not by our own works, but by a work of the Holy Spirit upon us, He, God, outside of us, comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and brings the washing of regeneration and renewal that is through Jesus, that is what he did. You remember, on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples. He knew he was going to the cross, but he met with them, and that's when they had this meal together that he he elevated and moved up from Passover to what we would know as his supper, the Lord's Supper Communion. On that night, he gave them that mandate uh, that they're to love each other as he's loved them. But he also told them not to be afraid. Told them not to be afraid. Why? Because the Holy Spirit would come. And the Holy Spirit would be another, he said, helper. It's a little word that we know, parakletos, which Jesus used of himself as as the strengthener, the defender, the helper, the comforter, the one that would come alongside us and and defeat our enemies that 's this Jesus, and he says another one 's going to come, and this this other one is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit whom I will send and and the job, if you will, the task of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, would be to glorify Jesus uh, in John in chapter fifteen we have uh, we have that night recorded for us and we have these words John 15 verse 26 but when the whole, when the helper comes whom i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me and you will also bear witness of me because you have been with me from the beginning and then he speaks of this very one again in chapter 16 and verse 7 he says nevertheless i tell you the truth it's to your advantage that i go away For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the work of the Spirit is to take what Jesus has said and done and declare it. Now remember, when God speaks, stuff happens. God's word is creative. It brings about that which it speaks. And so when this, the, the Spirit declares in the personal way what Jesus has done, he brings the work of Christ to us up close and personal in the context of our own lives. That's why when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit brings life, you see. And even here he says he says, all of this salvation comes to us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, when the Spirit, Holy Spirit comes to us, we are washed, cleansed, really. Baptism signifies that cleansing. In the Old Covenant circumcision signified that cleansing, that belonging to God. So when we baptize our little ones, the promise that is made to them is that there is washing that comes. There is cleansing that comes by the work of Christ and the renewal of the Holy Spirit through faith in him. All of that, you see, that's what we're promising them. What a great promise that our kids are heirs to. When people come on profession of faith and they haven't been baptized yet, we, we, we do the same. We, we, we baptizing we say this signifies the washing that comes by this renewal of the holy spirit and this regeneration and when we speak of this regeneration we're clearly talking about something god does to us not something we do to ourselves right we can't conceive we can't give life we can't conceive ourselves in any way it's inconceivable right we can't conceive ourselves It's something that's done by someone else on our behalf. And so this this regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, you see. We simply can't do it ourselves. Verse 3 tells us that we're stuck. So what's going to unstick us? What's going to rescue us? What's going to save us? Only Christ and the Spirit of God working this in us that we would experience and know the new life, this regeneration that happens. And we know that it's happened when we know our sin, as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, but also convinces us of the righteousness of Christ, all that he's done to cause God to declare us to be righteous in his sight. And so you see, that's this work of the Spirit. It's personal. It's real to us. And and we know it's happened because we know forgiveness of sins. We know that. And this renewal, this new life that comes to us, you see. We know it's come because we believe. We know it's come because the inclinations of our hearts have now changed. We see our selfishness. And it doesn't cause us to pursue our selfishness, but to repent of our selfishness. It's this newness of life that comes through the... Do we do it perfectly? No. But it's who we now are. We have this new life. And this happens for all believers. Notice how he puts it. He said, uh, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior is what we call Pentecostal language. That's the language of the day of Pentecost in Acts in chapter 2. And probably about once every three years or so, I'm asked by various ones to come and talk about something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Because there is a, 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 a... some thought that the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace subsequent to our salvation, our conversion. But this passage says, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It, 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 you received it. This is you, you got part of the Pentecostal gift when you were washed and regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. When this life came to you, that was the work of the Spirit. That's what that's about. The Spirit was poured on you just like it was poured out on that day of Pentecost to people. So, so you have the Spirit of God. He's worked within you this great work of renewal and grace, you see. This work of the Holy Spirit. And notice how he puts it then in verse 7. When this has all occurred, this is true. He says, so that being justified by grace. Justified means that God accepts us forgives us, and declares us right with him. That's this sense of being justified. It's a legal notion. He says, here's the law. It condemns you, but Jesus took the penalty for your sin and lived righteously. Therefore, in him, I can declare you by grace, nothing you've done, but what he's done, by grace, I can declare you to be righteous in my sight. Now, what strikes me, and probably some of you as Bible readers, is we're accustomed to reading the expression, we're justified by faith. But he says here, we're justified by his grace. Why does he say it that way? Well, Because his emphasis is that this is something that is a gift to you. And even your faith, you see, is from his grace. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he, he, he says it like that, verse 8 on chapter 2 of the passage I read moments ago, he said, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Not just the, self, not just the work of Christ, but, but your faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's all by his grace, you see. So you can say you're justified by grace, or you can say you're justified by faith. Why? Because your faith comes from his wonderful gift of grace. It's all of him, you see, the very grace of God. And it isn't that God is fanning some sort of flame that was sort of in us, but almost out. We had, we had a little bit of life in there, and he kind of just fanned it really well. No, 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 you're dead. No life at all. That's why Paul could write to the church in Corinth, we're new creations. It's the creative act of God to give us this new life, you see. And that's our only hope. We can't do it ourselves. That, you see is our only hope. It's not unlike at all what happened to Lazarus when he was dead in the tomb for four days and the people around him says, you're going to open the tomb? He stinks. He's been dead, really dead dead. Right? Stinky dead. And That's who we are. We're stinky dead. And then Jesus calls our name by the Holy Spirit. And we have life. It's like that. Lazarus knew he was alive because he started to move. He was animated. And so he knew he was alive. We know we're alive when we confess and repent and and now everything really is different. We view the life that we live. There was an interesting book published a number of years ago in the late 90s or some time like that called um, Evangelical Essentials, a liberal evangelical dialogue between two men. John Stott, who outline I'm following for this particular text and a guy named David Edwards. David Edwards was known as a liberal, articulate uh, Anglican in England. And So they had this debate, he and Stott, uh, about evangelical essentials. What's fascinating is that even though Edwards doesn't believe the orthodox essential of the cross, he describes it perfectly as he talks. Listen to this. It's a long quote. Hang in there with me. I just like this. If you want this quote, we'll send it to your email, Kristen, or me. He says, I'm sure that this strange wisdom of the cross is wiser than a great deal of philosophy and of theology has been in ancient or modern times. The cross is so central in Christian experience and understanding Because it's only on Calvary that we see fully how terrible is the power of evil in the heart of man and how great is the holy love of God who forgives, defeats, and removes that evil. Too many philosophers, even Christian theologians, I wouldn't go with them on that, by the way, um, have taken too shallow a view of such realities. Luther, in 1518, rightly attacked the theology of glory of the medieval church by insisting, ...on the theology of the cross. Even our own century, the century of Auschwitz and Hiroshima... ...of of pollution and starvation... ...some have remained optimistic that a political or technical solution could be achieved... ...which would one day mean that humanity had got these public problems licked by brain power and willpower. And even in our cruel age of so many millions of abortions and divorces... ...an age in which has aborted so many hopes of private happiness and has divorced so many from family joys and fulfilling work, the anxiety, loneliness, envy, greed, lust, and their evil consequences have been thought conquerable by better education, social arrangements, and psychological or physical medicine. The wisdom of the cross, however, is that although the skills of politicians, scientists, social reformers, teachers, doctors, and other benefactors of suffering humanity can reduce the problems... Basically, what is wrong in all history is the heart's inclination to evil. We can so easily be disastrously selfish and short-sighted as individuals, and even more aggressive and destructive when herded together in societies. We're often glad to see people who are our moral superiors pulled down. And we love violence, or at least are fascinated by its portrayal. We often twist religion itself so that it may justify our own self-interest and our depraved passions. And the only answer that has any hope of being completely and permanently successful must come from God. Only if God forgives, only if he exercises his creative and sovereign power, only if he communicates his power so that people doomed by their own crimes and follies can break out of the trap, can there be a human prospect of ultimate victory. That's exactly what Paul saying. We're not going to overcome this by our brain power and our willpower. We're not going to overcome this by different social arrangements or by education or by technology. The only one who can overcome this in us is God. And the good news is that he has in Jesus. And he simply says, don't rely upon yourself. Seek the Spirit. For he's the one who can bring the work of Jesus to you up close and personal. He's the one who can transform. He's the one who can bring this new life. And the goal of all of this is stated in verse 7. So uh, that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're heirs. That means that we have an inheritance. And so Paul is speaking about the future. There's a sense in which we've received eternal life already. In that sense, it's a done deal. Because eternal life is knowing God. And and we know Him. Right? He's come to us. And He's given us eyes to see Him and hearts to believe in Him and trust Him. So we have it there. but, But Paul's saying there's still something else to come. Don't look around here and think this is the best it's going to be. You're heirs. There's an inheritance that's really coming. And that inheritance is... Knowing God and being in His very presence for all of eternity. That's the bliss of it. I said a few weeks ago that there's very little in the Bible about, about glory, about what's to come, the new heavens and the earth and the new earth. And we want to say describe it for us. And I really believe God has described it for us adequately by saying, Oh, Jesus will be there. You'll see Him. And of course, it's, it's a great, and Paul even says we're to comfort ourselves with knowing that when uh, believers die, we'll see them. That's a good thing. But that isn't the biggest comfort in glory. The biggest joy and glory is it will be with those people we love who are believers and Jesus. And it's the and Jesus that's a real big part there. And we're going to see him and know him. and Everything will reflect him. That's all we need to know. Everything will afle- reflect his glory while we're there. And we're heirs of that. It hasn't come in its fullness yet. Again, one of the, the big issues in the church, at least in the last 150 years or so, is the question of how much do we have now and how much is to come. And when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, they were in this same issue. And Paul wrote to them rather sarcastically in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you think yourselves kings, that is, you think you've already arrived, you think it's, it's all here. And then Paul says parenthetically, if that's true, why am I the scum of the earth? You know, it hasn't come in its fullness yet. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Rome about about this inheritance, he puts it like this in Romans in chapter 8. He says, uh, verse 15, uh, he, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and heirs and of, heirs, and of children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, all that belongs to Jesus, we're heir to. Provided, he said, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The reality of this life is that there's suffering. And we'll endure it in Jesus' name. So that we'll know the glory of the inheritance, which is to come. And then the evidence of it. He says the evidence of it is that those who believe in God should devote themselves to good works. We're not saved by the works that we do, but we're saved so that we can do those things which are good. God, in his wonderful grace, doesn't leave us in our misery to where we're still stuck in our selfishness. He says, no, 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 no. I've freed you from that. Understand that. It's a struggle. Yes, I know. Selfishness still resides. That sin still resides. Put it to death. But as, as you're living your life, do that which is good. Be kind to other people. Care for them. When you see injustice, work to correct it. When you see people are hurt, try to help them. Do that which is good in the midst of that. Treat people well. Treat people honestly. All of that. Do that which is good. Not from your selfishness saying, how will this help me? But from God's perspective saying, how will this glorify God? And how will this help them? See, that's the freedom to be free of yourself so that we can able to look at others and say, regardless of me, how will this benefit them? How can I do good to them? How can I get out of the way of my own selfishness and self-centeredness and do that which is good? That should be the focus of our prayer. That should be the focus of, of our lives, to do that which is good. Not to earn it, but to live out that which has been earned for us that we may follow in the steps of Jesus. Right? So that's it, you see. It's this, this whole, he saved us. He saved us. Right? We couldn't save ourselves. He who loves sent his son as the ground of our salvation. And the Father and Son sent the Spirit so that through Him we might have the washing of regeneration and renewal all by the Spirit who's been poured out upon us so that we being justified by His grace may have the hope of eternal life. And then live. Live now in such a way that really brings joy. The joy that comes being freed from ourselves and to live unto God and do that which is good. Does that resonate with you? That's the question, you see. Does that resonate with you? Do you get that? If you get that, it means, no doubt, that the Spirit has been at work in you. If you don't get that, seek that use this moment and this day and the days to come to seek that and God would enable you to see your sin and your helplessness and your hopelessness and to see the sufficiency of Christ so that you will know this washing this renewal and have this hope that you may live let's pray Father pray for all of us that we would really know this. Um, it wouldn't just be theoretical. It would be the reality of our lives. We would have experienced this washing and renewal, this new life that comes by the Holy Spirit. Father, I know for me, at least, I, I look and I, I think sometimes I've wasted that which you've done because I haven't lived in a way that's consistent with it always. But yet then I realize you call me to confess and you call me to repent. You call me to pray and you call me to, to, to spend time in your word to be, to be nurtured and, 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 and fed. So that I can increasingly go and do that which is pleasing to you. So I pray that you would help us in that. I pray for those who have particular needs on this day that weaken us to the point of of perhaps more vulnerability, that at that point you would strengthen them. Uh, Lord Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said of you that a bruised reed you would not break and a burning flax you would not snuff out. And so, Father, I pray that at our various points of weakness and vulnerability, that your spirit, Jesus, would come and, 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 and touch us in those most bruised places. And would blow upon us in such a way where the flame is about out. That the bruised would be strengthened and healed and the flame would burst forth. Only you can do that. So I pray that you would for those who are sick, for those who are in financial difficulty, for those who are in relational problems, for those who are scared in the course of our political environment, for those who are trying to walk with you and yet find temptation to be so strong. In every situation we find ourselves, God, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in us. Assure us that we really are children of God, that we may really call to you, Father, Abba. And know that you hear us, and know that you care, and know that you help. And this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.